I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. We just passed the anniversary of 9-11. And on this edition of the program, we'll be discussing the terror attacks that rocked America to the core in 2001 with guest Ray McGinnis, author of the book Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked, and the 9-11 Commission ignored. Ray will tell us the story of the 9-11 Family Steering Committee, an organization of 12 relatives of victims of the attack, whose pressure campaigns led to the creation of the 9-11 Commission. These families wanted hard questions answered about issues like Saudi ties to the events of that day as well as how the attack happened and why the United States government was unable to stop it. Who, they were asking, dropped the ball? So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Ray McGinnis, author of Unanswered Questions, what the September 11th families asked and what the 9-11 Commission ignored. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with, Ray McGinnis, author of Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing great. Uh, If you could, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background, because uh, before you wrote this book... Uh, I guess you you um, had a background in theology. So how did you get into nine eleven? Yeah, I mean, way way back, 
<laughs> Way back, I, I was uh, involved in, in Christian education as an, as an educator with a liberal Protestant church in Canada called the United Church of Canada back in the 80s in through the 90s. And I organized conferences uh, nationally and, uh, and, and was involved in a magazine for youth. Uh, and, and in the late nineties, then I switched and pivoted to, I went to the center for journal therapy in Denver and the uh, Banff school of fine arts in the Rocky mountains and uh, took, uh, courses in poetry, building on my bachelor of arts degree from the university of Toronto earlier. And I began teaching variously writing workshops, um, journaling and healthcare facilities to help people recover from, uh, write about their recovery from injury and illness. Uh, working with grief support groups, uh, helping people write memoirs, often with grandparents writing snapshots in their lives, their grandkids, and taking people on uh, on nature trails and stopping to see what was on, on, on the horizon, and then writing poems about it. And in 2005, I, write a, I wrote a book called Writing the Sacred, which is a book about the biblical book of Psalms, inviting people to look at the poetic devices in the psalms and the themes there and then to write their own new spiritual poems or psalms from whatever tradition they happen to be from so so that was sort of my kind of world uh and and so at at the time that september 11th happened uh you know i was teaching writing workshops and uh and uh yeah i can tell you more about where i was if you want me to talk about that too. no i'd love for you to elaborate a little bit maybe yeah so so on september 11th 2001 i am i was in joshua tree a national park uh, a retreat center you know right by the you know not far from 20 minute drive from the jumbo rocks and uh i was the one person who was not an american citizen i was from canada and there was 60 americans who were from about 20 different states across the usa and, you know, there were people were doing meditation and yoga and, you know, creative arts. And uh, I got up that morning at sunrise and went for a walk and saw a plane flying overhead, traveling east from some uh, West Coast California airport and, uh, you know, saw some coyote. Anyway, I, you know, saw the Joshua trees and other things. And and then, I you know, after we had our kind of morning uh start to the day uh the leader of the of the program uh kind of came in and, and asked us 60 people to stand in a circle and said they had just been on a phone call from a friend of theirs in the east coast to let them know that there had been you know planes that had hit two buildings and a plane had hit the pentagon at that point uh probably the south tower had fallen, the North Tower probably hadn't at that point. I was in a setting where there was no um, no TV. So I didn't see anything, but I heard about it as this woman talked about what, 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 they, what she understood. Two people in the room had a finance officer who, who held their portfolio, who worked in one of the towers and they were, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in in tears and uh, and worried that he would have might might be dead, but he, I mean, he we learned later that he was alive. But there was a lot of high affect, emotional affect, people, you know, gasping and and, and tears and so on. 
Uh, and then I, uh, uh, my plans to fly back to Vancouver after the event was over changed. Uh, it took me five days to get back, uh, finally on a bus north of Seattle across the Washington state, British Columbia, Canada border to Vancouver. And, uh, you know, I went, I went to listen to Foreign Affairs Minister of Canada, Lloyd Axworthy, speak at the Central Library in Vancouver. And he thought, you know, mid-September, he thought that the best response, given that the allegation was Osama bin Laden had a, a, was responsible for this, he thought that this should be a police and intelligence operation, go apprehend the guy and put him on trial, you know. I mean, that made sense to me, but nonetheless, then the the, the war in Afghanistan began. There was already the, the anthrax attacks, and it was really a whirlwind. And and I, what I can say about about those years, I mean, I'm busy, you know, building my business, teaching, writing workshops, and uh, and I I do follow the news, but and I did during the 9/11 Commission. Well, that was on and got scant reportage up in up here in Canada. I did happen to see Condoleezza Rice, uh, you know, swearing, you know, in and, and testifying. And I heard a little bit of Richard Clark. But otherwise, the whole thing, the whole 9-11 commission just was like a, it was way in the back, way off the radar somehow. Uh, and, you know, maybe differently in, in America, but anyway, in Canada, it just wasn't uh, covered. And so my, I had very, you know, little impressions. And when the report came out in the summer of 2004, I was probably at a poetry retreat for a week and didn't even know it had come out. So, so then, I mean, I carry on teaching my writing workshops, interested in personal narrative. And, uh, and in 2007, I picked up at, a, at an airport uh, in, I think I was in San Antonio visiting people I knew and, and I picked up a book because I needed to, you know, get a new one. The book I'd been reading was done. And the book I picked up at this airport bookstore was called Wake Up Call, The Political Education of a 9-11 Widow, written by Kristen Breitweiser, whose husband Ron had died in the South Tower. Now, now is she one of the, the famed Jersey girls? Yeah, she's one of the famed Jersey girls. So she's one of the famed Jersey girls, but... Uh, me in Vancouver, Canada in 2007, didn't know who the Jersey girls were. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I want to add another layer of this. I'm somebody who, who reads a lot. I listen to the radio. Uh, I do go online to, to, you know, mainstream sources and, and more. But I haven't had a television since 1991 with the Persian Gulf War. So... Uh, so when it comes to the images uh, that every the, the people who watch TV who who get impacted by seeing the towers fall, you know, probably a hundred times by the end of September of two thousand one, I didn't actually see on a on a TV screen the towers fall probably to about two thousand and five. So I'm I'm getting my information. I understand what I'm reading, but I, I I have to sort of see it in my mind as opposed to see it visually. So, yeah, so when, so in 2007, I'm reading uh, Kristen Breitweiser's memoir and I was wondering, well, here, this seems like an important story. You have family members who've lost loved ones and after the, the memorial services are over and, and they've done with the death certificates, among, among those who, who are still grieving, 
there are some who are not just deciding to go and return to a private life, but they're now going to Washington, D.C. and knocking on the doors of senators and members of Congress and, and pestering the White House to have an investigation. And I thought in 2007, why haven't I heard about this in Canada? So before we go any further with that, and I do think maybe just for some listeners, we'll have to get into the 9-11 Family uh, Steering Committee and, and also who the Jersey Girls are in case I have listeners that are unfamiliar. But with regards to my background, on this show, I've usually covered 9-11 from a very specific angle in that the main story I've covered related to 9-11 uh, has usually been from the angle of uh, the former FBI agent Mark Rosini um, and uh, Richard Clark, uh, who was sort of the counterterrorism czar. And for people that need a refresher on that, uh, Rosini was part of the CIA's bin Laden unit while he was in the FBI. And, you know, his angle on the story is why did the CIA not share information about two of the hijackers, Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar, uh, coming to the U.S. Why was that the piece of information that wasn't shared? He doesn't believe it was a firewall. And uh, I find his story uh, very compelling. Uh, you're you're dealing with a lot of other unanswered questions, though. What are some of the other unanswered questions you're dealing with and the sort of angle you're dealing with it from, which is the families and their sort of pursuit of truth? Because like I said, this is sort of... Um, new territory for a lot of my listeners who are mainly familiar with the Rosini story. Yeah. So, so when I, when I decided to, to write this book, finally around 2016, it was out of an awareness that, that although there are multiple books out there about the events of September 11th and the heroes and other, you know, the, you know, a lot of books about it and photo books about uh, images of ground zero and so on. Uh, aside from Kristen Breitweiser's memoir, I mean, there's another book by uh, uh, Jeanette McKinley, um, who was a resident in across from World Trade Center Four, and she wrote a, a diary about it. But there was not a lot about the family's efforts to have an investigation, and so uh, so when it came to my uh, finally writing my book and having the, the part three of my book, which covers about a dozen questions, 11 part three and one part four, that the families asked, I was aware that there are many questions that people have in the general public. There are people who are variously all part of a large catchment of the 9-11 truth movement, which is very broad and diverse. But I wanted to, to look and see, well, what did the families pose to the 9-11 commission? What, you know, so... So, you know, the questions that they asked were things like, um, you know, why was the, um, you know, why, why wasn't Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, um, like, um, like why, why was, why was it not on a list of, of countries sponsoring terrorism? Uh, and, and even, um, you know, there, there were questions that they had, like, like who told, like they said, who told intelligence in March of 2001 to back off investigating terrorists? Who gave the order and why? Uh, you know, I mean, they they have questions about the uh, you know the Visa Express uh, you know so so they had I mean I mean they had a, 
altogether, they have questions and subsets of questions, but they have over a thousand questions that they asked, asked various that they wanted the commission to ask the president, the vice president, uh, uh, Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, Richard Clark, and then, you know, FBI, CIA, Pentagon, and, and so on. And so, um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, when you ask what, one of the questions that I, that I looked at was the question about, uh, you know, why did, um, you know, who, who gave the, you know, the Saudi, uh, why were the Saudi relatives whisked out of America so quickly when other planes were grounded after the attacks, including, uh, these you know, were the relatives of bin Laden, right? Yeah, the relatives of bin Laden. And, and the family members are asking, like Donna Marsh O'Connor, whose daughter died, you know, who was pregnant at the time. She says, how come the only people who could fly planes uh, were relatives of, of bin Laden, the, the named perpetrator of, of, the, of the attacks, when the family members who've just lost loved ones at ground zero and on the planes and the Pentagon aren't allowed to get on a plane themselves. So, and one of the things that, I mean, looking into that, to that question, I mean, like Richard Clark said, as you may, you may know, Richard Clark says, uh, you know, when he's asked a bit about this at the 9-11 commission, well, you know, you know, talked about it with the FBI. Someone told me that, uh, that we should let them go, you know, the relatives go back to Saudi Arabia. And so, he agreed. But then, you know, I did some research later on after he was at the commission, uh, the Hill uh, uh, paper in Washington, D.C. followed up and they and they said, so who was it that that gave you, um, you know, that gave you, you know, the suggestion that, that you should let them go? And Clark conceded, well, actually, it was myself. I was the person who 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 said that they could go. And, and so and so here you have in the testimony of Richard Clark, he's saying somebody told me that, uh, you know, we should do this. And I went ahead and did it. I don't think anybody in that room would have thought that he meant that the somebody was himself. You know, you know, so this is this is an example of, of how of how people in, in political office will say things that give them wiggle room. They know what they mean, but they probably also know that what they're inferring will be taken in a completely different way by the audience listening. In terms of the 9-11 Family Steering Committee, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the Jersey Girls uh, for people that are unfamiliar uh, and some other figures, uh, Bob McIlvain. Um, who are the main sort of players in this uh, push for, you know, answering these questions when it comes to the 9-11 families. Yeah. So there are, there are, I mean, there were a dozen people formerly on the family steering committee for the 9-11 independent commission, which, which came together over the winter of 2001. And, and, and they uh, include the Jersey girls who are Kristen Breitweiser, whose husband lived uh, who worked, uh, Ron worked in the South Tower. And then you have Patty Casaza, who was a, a nurse with a, a young son, I think just a couple years old, J uh, John Jr. And her husband, John, died in the North Tower up in the 104th floor, as did Mindy Kleinberg's husband, Alan, who was also about the 104th, 105th floor. And then Lori Van Auken, whose husband, Kenneth Van Auken, 
also died in the North Tower, I think around the 104th floor. And these four women, because they all lived in New Jersey, then got referred to as the Jersey Girls as they began to be interviewed, especially uh, once they were interviewed by Gail Sheehy on a PBS special in 2003, I think in 2003. And so, and so that moniker followed them, even though uh, all of these adult female women are not girls, but but there you go. <laughs> so so there there are those four. Uh, there's also um, uh, Mary Fetchett, uh, who's who's up in Connecticut. Her son Brad Fetchett um, dies in the South Tower. You have uh, Beverly Eckert, who's also. Uh, together with Mary Fetchett, part of the what was called Voices of September 11th up in New Haven, Connecticut, I think. And uh, Beverly Eckert later on after meeting President Obama in early February of 2009, dies in a small plane crash uh, the week the week later. She was uh, somebody who was uh, wanting to take the government to court and didn't accept the uh, payout that families were given on the condition that they would never sue the government. Uh, there's Carol Ashley. Um, uh, there's, uh, there's also Sally Regenhart and uh, Monica Gabrielle, who are part of the Skyscraper Safety Campaign. And uh, Sally Regenhart's son, Christian, uh, was a probationary firefighter with the Fire Department of New York, and he died. And Monica Gabrielle's husband, Richard, Richard worked in the, in, the, in the towers, and he died as well. And they were especially focused on it you know, the evacuation protocols, as well as, you know, how could the buildings fall the way they did. I want to say as well, you've got people like uh, Carrie Lemack, who, uh, whose mother was on one of the planes, and she goes on to become uh, a, a, a fellow or a, 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 with the Council on Foreign Relations. And she's involved in... Um, uh, agreeing with, with some people who are writing books or writing articles suggesting that Americans need to be afraid, like around 2004, 2005, that bin Laden has plans now to, to murder 4 million more Americans. And she's involved in a, a documentary short called Killing in the Name, in, which in 2010 is nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, so uh, just to say, uh, from what I can tell from those who've said how they voted in 2000 election with Bush versus Gore, I would say that the majority uh, voted for President Bush. Um, so and I think it's important for, for listeners to understand that, that the family steering committee was not a bunch of diehard Democrats that, that had it in for President Bush. And Patty Casaza talks about how you know, she voted for him and they, she thought, well, why wouldn't he want to know what happened and how the defenses failed? It was only after they, you know, got into the whole experience that they were really astonished at the resistance coming from the Republican White House. Uh, something I wanted to get into uh, was how does the family steering committee end up being pivotal to the creation of the 9-11 Commission, because I think people forget that, you know, the co-chairs of the 9-11 Commission, including Thomas Keene, uh, have openly said if it wasn't for the, the you know, victims' families, there probably wouldn't have been a 9-11 Commission. Yeah, so, so the Family Steering com Committee 
ends up being 12 individual family members who are all from various different family groups. I mean, there were, and, and everybody could join more than one group. I mean, well, I mean, the, the September 11th advocates, which was the Jersey girls had their own thing, but other people could join, you know, you could be part of families of September 11th. Beverly Eckert was part of Peaceful Tomorrows in Connecticut, but she was also part, or, or Peaceful Tomorrows in, in New York, but she was also part of Voices of September 11th in Connecticut. And so you, people could be part of three different family groups. Others were involved with groups that were trying to, you know, get the remains of people and so on. So, so the 12 people were representatives that represented organizations that end up in total representing, you know, you know, tens of thousands of family members. And so they, uh, I mean, they, what, they were not. They they went to uh, to Washington D.C. out of uh, out of frustration in June of 2002. They were getting nowhere. Uh, Vice President Dick Cheney had uh, been uh, resisting uh, any attempts to get uh, to have an investigation. He'd said that it would only give comfort to the terrorists if we had an investigation, and uh, and, and 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 cautioned. Uh, Senate leader, Democratic Senate leader, Tom Daschle to sort of back off. And, uh, and so uh, the families uh, had a rally in June of 2002. They got the support of Republican Senator John McCain and uh, uh, Democratic Connecticut, Connecticut Senator uh, Joe Lieberman. And, and then that, that began, began kind of a start to steamroll and Kristen Breitweiser was invited to speak at, at what was the Joint Intelligence uh, com Committee on, on the 9-11 attacks, which was Joint Congress and Senate. And she spoke on the 18th of September, 2002. And in her testimony, she very effectively uh, itemized uh, wholesale all kinds of failures uh, and, and wondered, well, how, how can the FBI, for example, have no idea who anybody is, and then the moment the attacks happen, within 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 an hour, they already know, you know, which uh, grocery store in Maine, which which parking lot, which airport, which, you know, all these you know photos that she, she did, you know, it just doesn't didn't make sense to her. Uh, she itemized all these different failures in every sector of of, uh, of government agency, and so that testimony in mid September of two thousand two. Uh, was uh, it was described by one of the White House staffers? It was like a, now a train was coming and nothing could stop it. And so, but <laughs> but the surprise is that something sort of began to stop it because initially the president President Bush said, "Okay, we're going to do something," and then he kind of backed off. So he's kind of flip flopping all the way through. And 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 so family members were having interviews with you know Chris uh, Matthews Hardball and other things. And finally, President Bush signed, uh, you know, you know, just off on on having the 9-11 commission in mid-November. But then he goes ahead right away and hires Dr. Henry Kissinger to head up the whole thing. And the thing is about that is that the families said, you know, like they just had a niggly feeling about like Dr. Kissinger, really? Like, isn't he the guy connected to uh, maybe the coup in Chile and other other things? And so uh, a number of them did some background checks on him, just sort of wondering about him. Uh, Dr. Kissinger had a meeting with the family. Most of the family steering committee went to his uh, Swiss apartment or office up in 
in Manhattan. And uh, they tell the story how, uh, I mean, he turned up like it's, it's winter. It's early December. He, they're all wearing, you know, winter clothes. He's turned up the thermostat to like 90 degrees. They're starting to peel off their coats and sweaters. And uh, while he's serving them coffee and, you know, goodies, uh, I think Lori Van Auken said, you know, Dr. Kissinger, we just want to make sure there's no conflict of interest. They don't have um, any clients by the name of Bin Laden. At that point, Dr. Kissinger, <laughs> he spills the coffee on the table, all over the table, practically falls off the, uh, you know, off, off, the, off the couch. And, uh, and the next day he resigns. Does, doesn't say why, but. I was going to say, to me, it's crazy. I mean, Henry Kissinger is such an infamous name, you know, in the world of foreign policy. And he's so controversial. Yeah. You know, why would you pick Henry Kissinger of all people? But go on. Yeah, I mean, Henry Kissinger was, you know, uh, I mean, at that point, it's interesting to see what the press is doing. At that point, even the press, you know, L.A. Times, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Chicago Tribune and other papers are all saying this is a bad choice. Henry Kissinger has a penchant for secrecy, you know, you know, make a different decision. But but it was after the families met with Kissinger that he he resigned. And then uh, uh, George W. Bush appoints Tom Keene, who I don't know the families knew at the time. He has connections to uh, the um, uh, the the consortium of companies that want to build a pipeline across Afghanistan. And then uh, Lee Zelico is the other one, right? Was that? Uh, no, Zelico is the, is the, is the director, the executive director behind the scenes that the families learned more about in 2004, but Lee Hamilton is the vice chair and Lee Hamilton, a long time uh, Dem Democrat congressman from Indiana, who uh, over time the families learn, oh, oh, he's the guy who was on the kind of October surprise uh, inquiry to see if uh, if the Republicans did anything to get in the way of Jimmy Carter's reelection by doing a deal with the Iranians to prevent the hostages from being released before, you know, because they got they got released the day that Reagan, you know, began his term of office in in January of eighty one, and then. Uh, and then Lee Hamilton was also involved in the Iran-Contra inquiry. And uh, he, he, you know, he talked about how, you know, I looked Oliver North in the face and I, I, I you know, I knew that he couldn't be lying to me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like, you know, as well, as well, Lee Hamilton just happens to be, Lee and his, his spouse, the Hamiltons and uh, the Rumsfelds and the Cheneys uh, have a habit of going on vacations together. So... You know, uh, I mean, it, as as the families learn now, you've got Lee Hamilton and and Tom Keene co-chairing this, and the, family, the families are thinking, you know, where's the conflicts of interest, and they're they're looking out for that. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they're, you know, and and at the same time, I mean, they're carrying this grief of the, you know, the, the you know, there's one less person sitting at the at the at the kitchen table each day. They're really hoping that the government, and now that they're finally going to have an investigation, they're going to do the right thing. But then they run into, oh, 
compared to uh, the Clintons in the in the 1990s with Monica Lewinsky and Whitewater and 80, $80 million dollars going toward those investigations. Here we have just three million dollars to investigate the deaths of nearly 3,000 uh, you know people, and and then they find like they're having meetings with uh, you know Tom Keene and Lee Hamilton in into the into 20, 2002 before the uh, hearings begin. Uh, Lee Hamilton's expressing the opinion he thinks having public hearings is a bad idea. He thinks that uh, they, they shouldn't subpoena any, any agency because they don't want to be seen as being mean to the White House or mean to, to the FBI. They just want people to do things on their own, you know, out of their good, own good nature. So, uh, so the families start to realize, I mean, they, they push back and say, no, we need to have public hearings. And then there's a schedule, I think, of maybe over, over 20, you know, 25 public hearings uh, uh, early on. But then by the time, uh, by the, time the, the commission wraps up in, in July of 2004, they've only had 12 public hearings over 18 days. So, you know, so there, there's, and, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it begins to, you know, there's a lot of people that are hoping that the inquiry will do the right thing. Uh, they publicly, the families, you know, they present all of their questions to the 9-11 commissioners and the commissioners tell the press, thank you families. These are really great questions. We're, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take these and, uh, and do our job. But privately, the, the commission uh, doesn't address 70% of the questions briefly touches on 20 percent 21 and and only seriously dives into into nine percent I want to give you an example of of what might technically be called one of the questions that they touched upon the 21 percent they touched upon uh, Donald Rumsfeld is on the stand and he's being asked by one of the commissioners uh, Mr. Rumsfeld did you order planes to be uh, scrambled to defend the Pentagon and Rumsfeld answers by looking around, sees the paint on the wall, the ceiling fixtures, other people in the audience, the wallpaper, the glass of water. And he repeats the question, did I order jets to be scrambled uh, to defend the Pentagon? At that moment, Tom Keene bangs the gavel and says, time's up, next question. So technically, technically, we could say that the question was asked, but the question was also not answered. <laughs> I was I was also going to say, uh, since I had mentioned Philip Zelikow earlier, I think this gives an insight into the way this commission worked. In interviews that I've read of Zelikow, he's basically always written off the entire Saudi Arabia angle, saying, oh, that's red herring. That's a red herring, you know. So it sounds like a lot of people in the commission are involved with it, had their minds made up about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, what the families find out, it I mean, initially what the families, I mean, they're, de they're dealing with Philip Zelico as the executive director, but partly because he's not one of the, not, the 10 commissioners who are, who are sitting there asking questions of the witnesses. Each of the commissioners get just five minutes to ask they're, they're important questions. <laughs> uh, so never go into any depth if someone answers or answers with something which might be interesting to follow up, then no, your time is over now. Next commissioner, totally different direction of questioning. But uh, 
so the families are focused on these uh, 10 commissioners. Over time, they, they begin to see more about, about how prominent the role of the executive director, who really is running the show, uh, who's, who is, um, who's preventing, uh, you know, commission staff from having contact with the families, who's trying to prevent even contact between the commissioners and the families, and, um, or even the commissioners and the other 80 staff. Uh, in, uh, I think, April of 2004, the families learned that the previous year, in March of 2003, prior to the first uh, public hearing on the 31st of March uh, 2003, uh, there was an outline written up uh, about uh, the 9-11 Commission report by Ernest, by Ernst May, a senior counsel to the Commission, and Philip Zelikow. And they wrote, uh, the outline had uh, he uh, chapter headings and subheadings. And when you look at the commission report and it's actual published headings and, sub, uh, and, and subheadings, sub subchapter headings, uh, it's almost a mirror image. I mean, there's, there's a little word change here or there, but it's, it's, it's like a template. And, and so, I mean, Bob McIlvain, who was not on the Family Steering Committee, but, but sometimes was involved in, in some of the meetings uh, with some Family Steering Committee members and people like Lee Hamilton, said it was outrageous that the, that the, whole, uh, the whole template, which really the, uh, the, the, an outline for, the, for what the report would find, and, I mean, the direction of it, that you, you can only write chapters in specific ways if you think that you're going to conclude the following things, otherwise you don't know, you know, because uh, because in a proper investigation, now you've had a surprise witness or a whistleblower who said something, and now you go off in a new direction because you're finding out the following things regarding the CIA or the FBI or, or national security or NSA. But no, they decided to have this prescription. So McIlvain said it was outrageous that they would decide before um, they wrote, they did the investigation, what the report would basically look like. Yeah, uh, Bob McIlvain is actually a really interesting character to me because, I mean, just to give an idea, I mean, all of these people are going through uh, just immense amounts of grief after 9-11. You know, I think uh, Bob's son was only 26 uh, when he died in the 9-11 attacks. So, I mean... These are people that really uh, raised hell to get this commission, you know, uh, made, and they had real questions to ask. Yeah, I mean, like when when I've talked to him on the phone and a couple times, and you know, his son was best they can figure out. He was walking into, I think, the North Tower uh, on his way to a meeting, and at that point, there was a blast. Uh, the, a detonation of some sort that blew him out, blew him out of his shoes. And, uh, and, uh, and, and his son, uh, Bobby Jr. was one of the first people who was at a morgue to be, you know, looked at by, by the staff there. Uh, and this was all before the towers fell. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, everything that's, uh, 
that that you know I think it took an, uh, maybe six years before Bob McElvain went and talked to the coroner, the person that did the autopsy, and talked about you know the the condition of of his son's body and and you know it, it was not uh, you know he didn't get you know it wasn't like a, a fall down fire thing it was definitely there was a detonation of some sort that blew him back as he was walking into. The, the North Tower, which raised, of course, all kinds of questions. Uh, I mean, I mean, another another person who 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 has you know questions about about just what was going on in the building that day was Mary Fetchett, whose son Brad uh, died. Um, the uh, the protocols in 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 1993 when there was a bomb in the North Tower and uh, many people were injured and six people died there was a police detachment from Brooklyn with a helicopter and they landed on the North tower and they rescued, you know, dozens of, I don't know, 56 people. Some of the, the number, the actual numbers vary depending on the AP and UPS and so on. But anyway, the, you know, 50, 55 people uh, who were rescued. And uh, you cut out there for a second. Could you repeat that? On, sure. So, uh, so, the Brooklyn police helicopter came in 1993 and they were able to rescue around 55, 56 people in 1993 with the truck bomb. And then they came back in, uh, on the day, on the morning of September 11th, expecting that they could, you know, maybe rescue some people. Their estimation was that although there was, you know, there was a light breeze, there was smoke, you know, on the roof, but they could see, uh, the, 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 uh, the certified, uh, heli spot for them to land the helicopter. And they would have landed, except that there was nobody uh, coming out onto the rooftop because the doors were locked to the rooftop, which was which was not what's supposed to be the case. And uh, and when uh, when people were going down the stairs in the South Tower, they were being met with people from the Port Authority with bullhorns saying, uh, this is America. You are safe. Go back to your office desks. Go back or you will be fired. So the people who, who uh, disobeyed those orders are the ones who lived. The people who obeyed the orders to go back up to their offices perished. And uh, I mean, people like Mary Fetchett and others who, who lost loved ones in the South Tower um, say, how is it that apparently on the morning of September 11th, uh, four minutes after the North Tower had been struck by a plane, uh, CIA director uh, George Tenet is in the St. Regis Hotel having breakfast with former Oklahoma Senator David Boren. And uh, at that point, Tenet gets a call from Langley headquarters, CIA headquarters, and he's informed that the, uh, there's, you know, there's been a plane that's hit the North Tower. And immediately, uh, the CIA director uh, declares that this is the attack they've been fearing or waiting for. Uh, from bin Laden, and he's 110% certain that this is a terrorist attack. And so the family's question is, if you were certain that this was a terrorist attack, why did you not have somebody in the CIA headquarters call the Port Authority and tell them to get everyone to evacuate? One thing I wanted to get into, um, I know with what we just spoke about with Bob McElvain, and um, some of the others here that a, a lot of people will talk about uh, when it comes to the 9-11 truth movement or, or 
if that's what we want to call it. Uh, a lot of people will talk about things like, was there a controlled demolition? Or they'll talk about the Pentagon and, and missiles and whatnot. But I, I think what strikes me about the Jersey Girls and the 9-11 uh, Family Steering Committee is they weren't simply or often as interested in questions like that. Th- there were other questions they had that I think sometimes don't get covered by the more, I, I don't want to insult anyone, but by the more like hardcore 9-11 truthers. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, I mean, the families, like when they're when they're trying to, I mean, the questions that they had just in terms of response, I mean, you know, the CIA director's lack of like if, you know, if you're 100% certain that this is a terrorist attack, why wouldn't you want to get things rolling and get the Port Authority on board and evacuate the building as opposed to just pretend that, oh, it's just some crazy pilot doesn't know how to fly. Um, and then uh, another another question is, I mean, they saw reports. I mean, I think Dick Cheney, vice president, was asked uh, around the 15th or 16th on, you know, CNN crossfires like that. You know, what happened to you? Uh, you know, that on the morning, he says, well, uh, you know, I was in my office and then the Secret Service came and they said, you know, we're going to take you to the, to the secure presidential emergency bunker. You know, no questions answered. We're just they, just they just kind of carry him, you know, like two big guys carry him on either side and off he goes. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, no, no, no debate about about that, because that's uh, what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to be a surprise attack and a and a, a key official is possibly in danger. And the family say, well, let's contrast that with with what happened for President Bush. He's in a in a in an elementary school room uh, reading a story of a pet goat to these right, my pet goat <laughs> grade two students, and and he is uh, you know he is purportedly uh, this is a, this is a surprise attack. Why wouldn't terrorists want to to get the crown jewel of, of American leadership by by killing the president? So how how why would they not think that the president might be in danger? Never mind the whole school since he's there, because uh, it's been a well publicized that the president would be going to that school that morning. But instead, uh, the president carries on and reads you know reads the story with with it, listens to the story with the ch- children and. And uh, Ari Fleischer, the White House press secretary, holds up a sign in the back of the schoolroom, which says, don't say anything yet. And the families are, well, what is it he's not supposed to say right now? You know, and uh, so uh, just the whole uh, the whole disconnect between the urgency of getting the vice president to a secure place and uh, and then slow walking the president in terms of the same response. And there's there's just, uh, you know, like. Why was there not, um, you know, why didn't he return immediately to Washington, D.C.? Instead, he flies, you know, over half the countries often in, uh, you know, Barksville or someplace in Colorado or Wyoming, you know, for a while and, and goes to a number of different different bases across the country. Seems to be out of the loop. I'm glad that you mentioned that really what the focus of the families was at this point they're sort of saying hey this the obvious question here is my family members died in this attack who fumbled the ball if if there was some ball fumbling going on there because you know how is it that these terrorists 
are able to pull off this attack. And, you know, why are my family members dead? Why wasn't there a better response is the the very obvious question they're asking. And that's sort of what I've always uh, admired about the Jersey girls and the rest of these families is it's a question that you would think everyone would be asking right after 9-11. How could this have happened? Why wasn't there a better response? And they're really the only ones asking in a lot of ways. And they're, I mean, they're asking, I mean, they're, they're wondering at the, at the disconnect between the people in key leadership. And you mentioned Richard Clark. Back in um, the mid-1990s, he is, uh, becomes a collegial friendly with, uh, with a number of United Arab Emirate royals. And, uh, and one of these is a defense minister for the United Arab Emirates. Uh, El Maktoum, I think, is his name. And, uh, and a number of these royals happen to be uh, buddies of Osama bin Laden and like to go bird hunting from time to time in Afghanistan. And in, uh, in February of 1999, the CIA learns that there's going to be another uh, bird hunting trip in Afghanistan. And, and the people in the field in the Near East believe that they can successfully apprehend bin Laden and bring him to trial uh, for the uh, alleged uh, uh, perpetration of bombing the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, however, Richard Clark uh, scuttles the, uh, uh, he's in a forum where he's in a position to veto and he vetoes it. The following month in March of 1999, the CIA is in a position to be able to just go ahead on their own steam without asking permission because uh, they find out that bin Laden is again on another bird hunting expedition with some of these United Arab Emirate Royals. And Richard Clark learns about this and he passes word on to the Royals that he knows in the United Arab Emirates that pass on word to bin Laden. And so bin Laden can slip away. So the families are saying, hey, wait a minute. If you're the national, if you're the counterterrorism czar, in charge of national security and, and trying to combat terrorism, how is that aided by your giving these kinds of heads up to somebody who it would seem uh, you want to have uh, land in court to answer charges of bombing embassies in the east coast of, of Africa? So again, the, the decision making is just inexplicable. Uh, I mean, uh, Kristen Breitweiser talks about, you know, is this, is this dereliction of duty? I mean, what what is this? It sounds like a, a key part of the story you're trying to tell is is really, you know, a story of a grassroots campaign. Could you maybe speak to that a little bit more? Because it seems like these families came together to really raise hell and say, we want answers. Yeah, they, I mean, they, 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 I mean, they came together. I mean, you know, you know, bit by bit, uh, they, you know, there were all these different groups. The, the Jersey Girls had their September 11th advocates group in the in the fall winter of 2001. There were other groups like Carrie Lemax's Families of September 11th, which also had Robin Weiner, whose uh, whose brother uh, was found on the rooftop of I think World Trade Center five, maybe. Um, uh, 300 feet or yards from, from where he would have been if he just jumped. But anyway, he ends up being way over there. And, uh, and so, you know, they're, they're from all these different groups and, and they finally, 
you know, they they find that they're all uh, individually. The skyscraper safety campaign with Sally Reaganard and Monica Gabrielle are trying to do their thing, but they find that they need to to come together and and have discussions, and that's why the family steering committee is formed. And and then they, I mean, I think that they they just uh, sat down together as the twelve family steering committee members, and and you know, they all. Uh, tried to craft different, the best questions that they thought should be asked of, of each agency and each uh, key individual in the White House. And uh, during the, so during the 9-11 commission, the Family Steering Committee issued almost 50 press releases. And many of these press releases were to try and keep the 9-11 commission honest and keep them on track. Uh, they issued in September of 2003 a report card on how the the 9/11 Commission was doing, and uh, and a number of, you know, they had, you know, I mean, transparency. I think didn't do very well. Uh, and, so you know, they're it, keeping score this whole time during the commission yeah. hearings. <laughs> yeah, like you know, imagine issuing. I mean, it's pretty. It's, I think it's really great. I mean, there they are issuing a report card on how the commission is doing. But I mean, they they noticed that the, that the commission up until September of 2003 had maybe issued maybe one subpoena, uh, and and that also they were concerned about um, there were government minders, so you have you have uh, people who are being called to testify in the public hearings, and the families also learn. Of course, there's also a lot of people who are being interviewed in private. Uh, settings by different uh, different of the nine commission staff teams uh, who who aren't speaking in public because of security issues, and and they're appearing whether in public or in private uh, to testify from the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, Pentagon, and so on. And when they are there to testify, they'll have beside them or standing behind them with the hand on their shoulder a superior staff person from that same agency. Sometimes a question is asked the, the staff person who's on the witness stand uh, and the, uh, my, the government minder who's superior will be intervening to answer the question for uh, that's, that witness or indicating maybe with the tap of the toe beside them, no, I want to answer this or no, don't answer that question. And the family said, you know, how can you have, how can people, how can we get to the truth of what happened if people who are witnesses are being called and being intimidated by these government minders? In your experience, having talked to some of these, um, these family members, what, what is their general takeaway uh, from 9-11? What, what do they believe is the truth of 9-11? And I'm assuming it may differ for some, uh, because I think everyone has their own take on 9-11 and the issues with maybe uh, how it's been covered in the news and how it's sort of narrativized today? Uh, I think that I think that a lot of the families um, who were in the, the public hearings, uh, I mean, by the time that the last hearings were happening in June 2004, many of the families, like the 9-11 Commission would rent buses and they were having to cancel buses because the family members, uh, you know, were were not not going in such great numbers because they just didn't want to be disappointed and disheartened and and 
<laughs> appalled by by the by the the kind of questions or lack of questions. I mean, you've got a, com a commissioner who's got five minutes to ask some really important questions of a given witness who may be female, and the question is being, you know, and the comment is being made, you know, those are really great slaps. I love your hairdo. You know, considering the person has five minutes to ask the essential questions of the witness and on the stand, you don't want to waste your time commenting on somebody's clothing or, or hairstyle. So, uh, so the families, I mean, Lori Van Auken and, uh, and Mindy Kleinberg, I think said in an interview uh, with Charlotte Dennett, who's a writer out of, uh, out of Vermont said that, uh, that they thought that, that the 9-11 commission was, was political theater, that it was really, uh, uh, an exercise to, you know, protect the president that that the commission's report was written uh, so that it would not embarrass the president, that there would be no findings in the report that would embarrass the president, and importantly, that nothing in the report would come out that would uh, harm the president's reelection chances in uh, in the fall of two thousand four. And, and yeah, so I think that that's that's you know that's that's one assessment. I mean, there are some people I, I would think that that Carrie Lemack. Uh, would be, you know, uh, one of the people who, possibly Robin Weiner, who would be um, uh, either enthusiastically supportive of the of, of the great 9/11 Commission report and, and hail it as a definitive uh, uh, piece of work, uh, or else would be, I think maybe Mary Fetchett, notwithstanding her her many objections to the way the Port Authority. Uh, made poor decisions that day in terms of evacuation would be uh, uh, pragmatically resigned to saying, well, this is the report the government wrote. And she was involved in, uh, in giving input into what the 9-11 museum would look like and so on. So, and then there's other family members who, who, uh, who uh, you know, I think the Jersey girls and, and a number of others who, who think that the, that the government is, is clearly involved in a cover-up and that kind of sense of it being involved in a cover-up would be echoed by the former co-chair of the Joint uh, Intelligence uh, Committee with the Senate and Congress, uh, Senator Bob Graham from Florida. Uh, he, he said by 2016 that he thought that the government regarding 9-11 was involved in active deception. Uh, if we could delve into that uh, just a little bit briefly here. Um... So these family members that believe that there was a cover-up, I mean, that's a very specific choice of words there. So are these family members necessarily saying, oh, it was an inside job, or are they saying there was a cover-up of intelligence failures? What, what, what do we mean by cover-up, I guess? Uh, well, this is where the, the, the choir is not all on the same page. I mean, there are many different voices who, who, who would say the word cover-up or deception or dishonesty. And, and some it's regarding uh, the government uh, covering up perhaps because of uh, oil interests or, or other, uh, you know, I mean, Saudi Arabia gets a lot of uh, military hardware from American defense contractors. So, uh, I, I, you know, there, there, are, there are people that think that this, you know, Saudi or that there are Saudi officials uh, maybe United Arab Emirates officials, maybe Kuwaiti, maybe Pakistani officials that 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 could be complicit. I mean, uh, 
the ISI and its connection with, with Al-Qaeda. And so uh, and the wiring from uh, the, the, the ISI chief, uh, um, um, General Mohammed, I think, to, to Mohammed Atta. Uh, yeah, he did, there, there was like a wire transfer done like, I think, yeah. a day yeah. or days before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, which in itself is sort of, I mean, it's a big figure, what, $100,000. But on the other hand, it's kind of puzzling, too. Why would you wire $100,000 to somebody who, who you think is going to be involved in a suicide mission, who's going to die the next, you know, that money is never going to be collected. But anyway, uh, but, but you've got all of these different players. Uh, I think that there are some families that, that would say, I mean, when Bob McElvain believes 100% that, that, that their government that his own government was was involved in the in the attacks in some way. Uh, now there there now because you've got over the years you've got even in like uh, April of 2020 you've got uh, Attorney General William Barr Trump's Attorney General and and the Director of, Int- of National Intelligence Richard Grinnell who are uh, speaking against the families having a lawsuit against Saudi Arabia because it will reveal state secrets and imperil national security. And the families are saying, how can our suing this, these certain individuals in Saudi Arabia imperil state secrets and national security? They just, they don't understand, uh, you know, I mean, which leads some of them to, to, to wonder, um, you know, I mean, Patty Casaza talks about the 19 hijackers as being patsies, which suggests she thinks that there's other people that, were involved somehow in this story, but she but she says more that that she still doesn't know who all was involved and and how it happened. So I and I think that that would be the case for many family members that, that I, I can't get inside their heads in terms of what they privately wonder. But I think many of the family members that that publicly make statements, especially those that want to have a, a lawsuit against Saudi Arabia, for example, are aware that if they go out and start saying things that are speculative, uh, they could um, they could hamper a successful effort to have a lawsuit happen at all. So uh, so that's, you know, I think I see a lot of caution on the part of families regarding what they what they say. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to clear that up because I, I think people forget that, you know, these families were asking very hard questions related to things like Saudi Arabia, related to the response, related to, you know, why couldn't you have captured bin Laden at this point, this point, or this point, that a lot of people, I I don't think, realize that those are the questions a lot of these families were asking. They weren't weren't asking questions that were unreasonable, in my view, with with regards to, uh, you know, the lead up to 9-11 and the sort of history, that that ended with this horrible tragedy. Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, I've I've read through the twelve thousand pages of the transcripts of the oral testimony of five hundred and three first responders, firefighters, and paramedics at the fire department of New York. The families had a had a question about you know nine eleven commission. Can you please dig into reports of explosions? And, and what I would say about that is, is, you know, the question was asked without judgment, without like a, without, uh, it wasn't like they, they knew what the answer was before they asked the question. I mean, if, 
if it is the, I mean, who, who ordered the bomb sniffing dogs to be removed on the 6th of September? Uh, if, if there were people in Al Qaeda that were somehow, uh, um, getting through security in the World Trade Center and able to plant bombs or secondary devices, which are being reported by firefighters, uh, rescuing people in the buildings. Um, that would be an even bigger breach of security and maybe even more embarrassing and maybe more heads would roll or people would be found, about, found out to be incompetent beyond belief. I mean, like the question that, from what I see, that when they ask these questions, they're not saying we know the answer. We just, we just want to understand, you know, I mean, and uh, so, yeah. Do you think it's important that those questions be asked? Because I, I want to be honest here. I, I've never really covered the angle of explosions and whatnot. And in fact, I've probably avoided it because I was more interested in the Saudi angle. Do you think uh, people that are interested in 9-11 do that at their own peril? I think I think it's, uh, I mean, for the families of, I mean, I've talked to Chris Joya, who was, uh, you know, with the Franklin Square and Munson Fire Department in Queens. And, you know, he lost, uh, you know, colleagues, you know, people that he knew. Uh, I think for the firefighter families, for people like Sally Reaganhart, who lost her son, Christian, they sure want to know. I mean, no, I mean, no fire chief in the fire department of New York expected the buildings to collapse the way they did. So I think it's, it's an important question, but it's not, it's not like the, the question that they begin with. It's, it's one of many questions and they would. That, that's want- the issue I have sometimes because I, I feel like it's the question that a lot of people interested in this topic, maybe focus on to the detriment of other questions. This, th- there's more than just that angle to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, I mean, there's quite, I mean, the other questions like, you know, why, you know, why were the, uh, you know, the planes able to evade radar and, and why were there, uh, you know, why, why take all this, like, wouldn't you want to do a proper forensic investigation and uh, hold on to debris from the World Trade Center and have a proper investigation? Bill Manning of the fire engineering magazine uh, kind of, paper of record connected to many of the firefighters in New York at the time said that it was outrageous that they were taking away all these, all this scrap metal and sending it off to Philippines and Korea and so on. So, I mean, there's, there's a variety of questions the families have questions about, about, about the long uh, connection with, uh, you know, I mean, the CIA's connection with the Mujahideen, I mean, going back to Zbigniew Brzezinski and, as well and under Carter and 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 CIA and and just you know I mean even like Patty Casaza talked about it's a big new Brzezinski and how they you know got the you know funding the the the, the freedom fighters against against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and then it leads to you know according to the official story the um, uh, this this terrible uh, attack uh, by Bin Laden. And after, you know, years after uh, the attacks, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was asked by a reporter, you know, given that, you know, government funding, uh, American government funding uh, of, of, the, uh, of, of the people in Afghanistan with bin Laden eventually led to these terrorist attacks, do you have any regrets? And Brzezinski paused and then he said, no, he had no regrets. 
This was the uh, French interview, right? That he later he tried yeah. to say, "Oh, I was misinterpreted or something." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, for I mean, I I I didn't lose anyone on September 11th, but I can't imagine uh, how I would feel with uh, you know if if that if that was my you know loved one, and 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 this is the kind of response. Um, it, it, it it seems pretty nonchalant pretty cavalier um before wrapping up uh were there any questions that specifically stood out to you that the family members asked that you think are the most important ones that maybe deserve more focus well i you know i i think that the, i mean the, the the response of key players like Donald Rumsfeld. I mean, he, where was he? I mean, he's the defense secretary and he seems to be, you know, in a number of different places, according to different, different reports, um, uh, didn't know anything about anything, you know, kind of haplessly trying to go around and, and aid people on a stretcher. Uh, but apparently also part of a, uh, uh, a key planning, uh, uh, events, which is seeing in real time what's happening by ten minutes after nine. So on the one hand, he's in in one in one story. He seems to be intimately aware of what's happened after the South Tower has been hit, and in other stories, he seems to be completely uh, you know at, at a loss and and caught uh, you know <laughs> without any any aware. So it it's hard to to add up to sort of add up these disparate stories about again and and just the you know i mean the, the day before apparently he said that uh you know he you know he you know he'd like he like to liberate the pentagon and and talked about the uh you know in who was asked questions about the 2.3 trillion dollars that were had gone missing and then and then it just happens to be the bad luck of what happened on September 11th that the that the plane that slams into the Pentagon wipes out 40 or 41 auditors trying to find out where that money went. So you know, I mean, <laughs> there's it's just you know, it's just I I think I think that for me, it ends up being you just sort of pile one one thing on top of the next and like there's all these coincidences of, of people making almost all all moving in the wrong direction in their own little little world all i, I was gonna say not not to interrupt you but uh it, this ties into what you're talking about are you familiar with a book um paul thompson's the terror timeline yeah read it yeah you know that that was one of the first books i read on 9 11 and i mean he also had the website the cooperative research website where you could see every article he just they were all compiled on there leading up to 9/11 just all these articles on every different facet of 9/11 and reading that book i was like enraged is i'm like regardless of of what one thinks the the truth of 9/11 is that book really shows you like oh my god how 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 could this happen and no one really take accountability for it you know, I mean, it's really quite amazing uh, because, you know, assuming there was no like government involvement in the attacks, I mean, it's it's still this like 
such a massive failure on epic proportions uh, of intel agencies, of administrations. I mean, it's it, it really should aggravate uh, the public. And, you know, I really it bothers me that more people don't take that seriously and don't really understand where the 9-11 family steering committee was coming from. Because like I said, just reading the terror timeline alone, I look at it and I say, how, how could this happen? Like who dropped the ball here and why aren't heads rolling? Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's so many um, problems with, with key decision-making and, you know, like who, who in March of 2001 said, let's, let's stop, uh, you know, trying to, trying to find out uh, what we can about terrorists. <laughs> and so so it, it just seems that, that uh, it, it, it ends up the, the sum total of all of the, all of the gaffes, all of the, all of the instincts and all the decisions and the lack of decisions ends up, I think, justifiably for many families looking to be a cover up. And, you know, I mean, I, and I, I've talked to some people about how the Secretary of Treasury, uh, who was Paul O'Neill, talked in his about in his 2004 memoir, "The Price of Loyalty," how at the first uh, cabinet meeting of the Bush White House in January of 2001, President Bush simply signaled and said to the the people around the table, "You know, um, you know, I want to finish what my dad started back in." The Persian Gulf War, and you know, find me a way to get into Iraq. You know, now, I mean, people who were there in powerful positions, whether the vice president, the CIA director, the you know, the defense secretary, and so on. Um, if 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 people you know make decisions, for example, instead of uh, of looking at at visas uh, of hijackers, you know, who come to the States and looking at the visa in Saudi Arabia and seeing, oh, this person's filled out the form saying, what year were you born? Answer, 1878. Normally, that visa gets denied because of a number of problems. First of all, that person, it wasn't born in 1878. If you, if you say, where, were you, where are you going to stay? And the answer is no, you know, that's not good enough. But but somehow uh, the, the State Department in uh, you know in Jeddah was overruled, and the CIA kind of fast tracked these these people to uh, to the USA, notwithstanding. So uh, so it, it you know it makes some families wonder. Well, you know if it seems that there were a dozen fourteen uh, intelligence uh, services of different nations that had some idea something was going to happen. If there are people in key positions that know from January of 2001 that the president would like to go to war in the Middle East against Iraq, maybe maybe Afghanistan, since since he signed uh, an authorization to go to war against Afghanistan, surprisingly, on the 9th of September of 2001, uh, maybe there are people who were in responsible positions that chose not to pass on information or to sit on their hands when things were happening and they could have done something. I mean, that, that's what a that's what a proper investigation would find. It's just sort of what the families are left to to wonder about. They're, they're left to ponder a lot of things because, I mean, to me, and the re- this is the reason I mentioned the terror timeline. I mean, even in the best case scenario with 9-11, I, I think it's sort of grotesque, even criminal negligence at work. And it seems like, that's never really been reckoned with by our society and our government. 
And, and if, if you, uh, you know, if a society and a nation carry with them a story that's really slanted or based on half-truths, uh, it, it, it then compounds over the years and it affects, uh, you know, I mean, you could have good people that might have thought they wanted to go into government, you know, in, in, the, in the intervening 22 years that looked at what happened in 9-11 looked at the story of incompetence on a massive scale and thought, I think I'm going to do some other kind of work. I don't want to go into that if it's that bad. So there's, you know, there's lots of, you know, of small decisions that people make when they have an impression of how uh, purportedly dysfunctional the government is based on the story of record. Is there anything else you want to say in closing or anything that we didn't uh, get a chance to cover uh, that you think needs to have some more light shed on it. Well, I think I think that I, I want to leave your viewers with with the sense that, I mean, when when I grew up, <laughs> I was born in the late fifties. I mean, although I lived in Canada, I knew who Rosa Parks was, and I knew about the the bus that she sat down on, and in, in you know Montgomery, Alabama, I think it was, and. And, you know, started the whole civil rights movement and, and how one individual can make a difference. And I think that although the Jersey girls especially are, are known somewhat in the press, uh, I think that really the story of what these families did is an exemplary story of, of what ordinary citizens can do to try and make a difference. Citizens and, advocacy. Yeah, citizen advocacy. And and so I think that, it, you know, whether it's my book or reading, uh, uh, you know, watching the documentary 9-11 Press for Truth or reading uh, Kristen Breitweiser's uh, uh, memoir, Wake Up Call. I, that, I just want to say real quick, if people haven't seen 9-11 Press for Truth, I honestly do consider that the best 9-11 uh, documentary. It, it is top notch. Yeah, yeah. So I think... I think it's uh, you know it's an important it's an important story and it's now part of the history of you know what of what of what they tried to do and it's important that we don't lose this story in the myriad of news stories that keep showing up every day on on the new on the twenty four seven news cycle. I think it's an important story for people to acquaint themselves with and and to understand. I also have to ask here uh, since you've done so much work on theology. I know that there's other people that are associated with what's been called the 9-11 truth movement, such as David Ray Griffin, who have had, you know, David Ray Griffin, to me, I know him as, you know, a really, really important theologian. I, you know, I've read some of his theological work. I was wondering, do you see any connection between your work on uh, theology and, you know, your your investigation and, and looking into these unanswered questions, as you put it, of 9-11? Well, I think that uh, in in the in the scriptures and of the Hebrew scriptures, there's a story about uh, the, the scapegoats in the Book of Leviticus, and and the the Hebrew people need every once in a while to 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 kill the scapegoat in order to sort of have peace peace again in society, and. Uh, I mean, in the in the New Testament uh, Christian scriptures, you know, Jesus is sort of seen as the scapegoat that takes on the sins of the world when he dies on the cross, and and whenever there is a trial, 
Uh, people are accused uh, sometimes of very serious crimes, murder. Uh, but there's a tradition that people are innocent until proven guilty. And, and so uh, you do a proper trial and you have an investigation and then a, a jury finds people innocent or guilty. But in this story, uh, days after the attacks of September 11th, uh, President George W. Bush was being asked, well, uh, you know, there were suggestions that the Taliban would hand bin Laden over to, to an international, you know, maybe at the Hague or something like that. And uh, the president said, we, we, don't, we don't need to have a trial. We know he's guilty. And, and that's, that's a little dangerous because if you, if you simply tell a story from the perspective of the person who's made an accusation and then skirt around the specifics of, of how solid the accusation is, whatever, whatever the event in history is, Sometimes you may be right, and it's just simply a matter that this is person's guilty, you need to hang them and so on. But we've had incidences in different countries over the, over the, the centuries. I mean, in France in the 1890s, uh, there was a captain, Jewish captain, Alfred Dreyfus, who was uh, accused by the general staff of, uh, of selling uh, a gun, uh, uh, secrets of a, of a new gun to the, to the Prussians. It was only because he was Jewish and they wanted to blame somebody and not the person who was actually responsible for it. And for 12 years in France, you know, people walk around with, uh, with uh, you know, pitchforks and torches and, and banners saying, kill the traitor Dreyfus, until finally they found out in 1906 that he was in fact innocent. So, uh, so in any big story, it's very easy to get caught up in the in the drama of the allegations and then if you short circuit finding out what happened and let the people who are making the accusations have all the uh, all the power in terms of driving the narrative you might get a story that is somewhat true but you also might get things that are concealed that don't tell some other things that would be important to know for the record so that's what i have to say about theology and, you know, the truth. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again, uh, Ray McGinnis, for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope everyone checks out the book, Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ray McGinnis and that you'll check out his book, Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I've been behind on releasing shows this week as I had to do a live stream on another show. If you're familiar with This Is Revolution, hosted by Jason Miles, I was on to talk the underappreciated gaslighting mystery thriller Psycho 2, starring Anthony Perkins. Check that out at This Is Revolution. You can find them on YouTube. The whole video is up there. 
And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.